Chapter 3 The Madness from the Sea If heaven ever wishes to grant me a boon, it will be a total effacing of the results of a mere chance which fixed my eye on a certain stray piece of shelf paper. It was nothing on which I would naturally have stumbled in the course of my daily round, for it was an old number of an Australian journal, the Sydney Bulletin for April 18th, 1925. It had escaped even the cutting bureau, which had at the time of its issuance been avidly collecting material for my uncle's research. I had largely given over my inquiries into what Professor Engel called the Cthulhu cult, and I was visiting a learned friend in Patterson, New Jersey. He was the curator of a local museum and a mineralogist of note. Examining one day the reserved specimens roughly set on the storage shelves in a rear room of the museum, my eye was caught by an odd picture and one of the old papers spread beneath the stones. It was the Sydney Bulletin I had mentioned, for my old friend has wide affiliations in all conceivable foreign parts, and the picture was a half-tone cut of a hideous stone image, almost identical with that which Lagrasse had found in the swamp. Eagerly clearing the sheet of its precious contents, I scanned the item in detail. I was disappointed to find it of only moderate length. What it suggested, however, was a portentous significance in my flagging quest. I carefully tore it out for immediate action. It read as follows. Mystery derelict found at sea. Vigilant arrives with helpless armed New Zealand yacht in tow. One survivor and a dead man found aboard. Tale of desperate battle, deaths at sea. Rescued seaman refuses. Particulars of strange experience. Odd idol found in his possession. Inquiry to follow. The Morrison Company's freighter, the Vigilant, bound from Valparaiso, arrived this morning at its wharf in Darling Harbor, having in tow the battled and disabled but heavily armed steam yacht Alert of Dunedin, New Zealand. It was sighted April 12th in south latitude 34 degrees, 21 west, longitude 152 degrees, 17, with one living and one dead man aboard. The freighter left on March 25th, and on April 2nd was driven considerably south of her course by exceptionally heavy storms 
and monstrous waves. On April 12th, the derelict was sighted, and though apparently deserted, was found upon boarding to contain one survivor in a half-delirious condition, and one man who had evidently been dead for more than a week. The living man was clutching a horrible stone idol of unknown origin. It was about one foot in height, regarding whose nature authorities at Sydney University, the Royal Society, and the museum in College Street all profess complete bafflement, and which the survivor says he found in the cabin of the yacht in a small carved shrine of common pattern. This man, after recovering his senses, told an exceedingly strange story of piracy and slaughter. He is Gustav Johansson, a Norwegian of some intelligence, and had been second mate of the two-masted schooner Emma of Auckland, which set sail February 20th with a complement of eleven men. The Emma, he says, was delayed and thrown widely south of her course by the great storm of March 1st. On March 22nd, the Emma encountered the alert, manned by a strange and evil-looking crew. Being ordered peremptorily to turn back, Captain Collins refused, whereupon the strange crew began to fire savagely and without warning upon the schooner. There was a heavy battery of brass cannon forming part of the yacht's equipment. The Emma's men put up a great fight, says the survivor, and though the schooner began to sink from shots beneath the waterline, they managed to heave alongside their enemy and board her, grappling with the savage crew on the yacht's deck. Forced to kill them all, the number being slightly superior because of their particularly abhorrent and desperate, though rather clumsy mode of fighting. Three of the Emma's men, including Captain Collins and First Mate Green, were killed. The remaining eight, under the second mate Johansson, proceeded to navigate the captured yacht. They went ahead in their original direction to see if any reason for their ordering had been existed. The next day, it appears, they raised and landed on a small island, although none is known to exist in that part of the ocean. Six of the men somehow died ashore, although Johansson is strangely reticent about this part of the story. He speaks only of their falling into a rock chasm. Later, it seems, he and one companion boarded the yacht and tried to manage her, but they were beaten about by the storm of April 2nd. From that time until his rescue on the 12th, the man remembers little, and he does not even recall when William Bryden, his companion, died. Bryden's death reveals no apparent cause. 
it was probably due to excitement or exposure. Cable advices from Dunedin report that the alert was well known. There was an island trader, and it bore an evil reputation along the waterfront. It was owned by a curious group of half-castes, whose frequent night trips to the woods attracted no little curiosity. It had set sail in great haste, just after the storm and earth tremors of March 1st. Our Auckland correspondent gives the Emma and her crew an excellent reputation, and Johansson is described as a sober and worthy man. The Admiralty will institute an inquiry on the whole matter beginning tomorrow, at which every effort will be made to induce Johansson to speak more freely than he has done hitherto. This was all that was written, put together with a picture of a hellish image. But what a train of ideas it started in my mind. Here were new treasuries of data on the Cthulhu cult, and the evidence that it had strange interests at sea, as well as on land. What motive prompted the hybrid crew to order back the Emma? Why did they sail about with their hideous idol? What was the unknown island on which six of Emma's crew had died? And why was Johansson so secretive? What had the Vice-Admiralty investigation brought out? And what was known of the noxious cult in Dunedin? Most marvelous of all, what deep and more natural linkage of dates was this which gave a malign and now undeniable significance to the various turns of events so carefully noted by my uncle? March 1st or February 28th, according to the international date line, the earthquake and storm had come. From Dunedin, the alert, and her noisome crew had darted eagerly forth, as if imperiously summoned. And on the other side of the earth, poets and artists had begun to dream of a strange, dank, cyclopean city, whilst a young sculptor had molded in his sleep the form of the dreaded Cthulhu. March 23rd, the crew of the Emma landed on an unknown island and left six men dead. And on that date, the dreams of sensitive men assumed a heightened vividness. They darkened with the dread of a giant monster's malign pursuit. An architect had gone mad, and a sculptor had lapsed suddenly into delirium. And what of this storm on April 2nd, the date on which all of the dreams of the dank city ceased? Wilcox emerged unharmed from the bondage of the strange fever on this day. What of all of this? and of those hints of old Castro about the sunken, star-born, old ones, and their coming reign, their faithful cult, and their mastery of dreams. 
Was I tottering on the brink of cosmic horrors beyond man's power to bear? If so, they must be horrors of the mind alone, for in some way the 2nd of April had put a stop to whatever monstrous menace had begun its siege on mankind's soul. That evening, after a day of hurried cabling and arranging, I bade my host adieu. I took a train for San Francisco. In less than a month, I was in Dunedin, where, however, I found that little was known of the strange cult members who had lingered in the old sea taverns. Waterfront scum was far too common for special mention. There was vague talk about one inland trip these mongrels had made, during which faint drumming and a red flame were noted on the distant hills. In Auckland, I learned that Johansen had returned with yellow hair turned white after a perfunctory and inconclusive questioning at Sydney. He had thereafter sold his cottage in West Street and sailed with his wife to his old home in Oslo. Of this stirring experience, he would tell his friends no more than he had told the officials, and all they could do was give me his Oslo address. After that, I went to Sydney and talked with seamen and members of the Vice Admiralty Court. I saw the alert, now sold and in commercial use, at Circular Quay in Sydney Cove, but I gained nothing from its non-committal bulk. The crouching image with its little cuttlefish head, dragon body, scaly wings, hieroglyphed pedestal, all well preserved in the museum at Hyde Park. I studied it long and well, finding it a thing of balefully exquisite workmanship and with the same utter mystery, terrible antiquity, and unearthly strangeness of material which I had noted in Lagrasse's smaller specimen. Geologists, the curator told me, had found it a monstrous puzzle, for they vowed that the world held no rock like it. Then I thought with a shudder of what old Castro had told Lagrasse about the primal great ones. They had come from the stars and had brought their images with them. Shaken with such a mental revolution as I had never before known, I now resolved to visit Mate Johansen in Oslo. Sailing for London, I re-embarked at once for the Norwegian capital, and one autumn day I landed at the trim wharfs in the shadow of the Edgeburg. Johansen's address, I discovered, lay in the old town of King Harald, which kept alive the name of Oslo during all the centuries, of which the greater city masqueraded as Christiana. I made the brief trip by taxicab, and I knocked with palpitant heart at the door of a neat and ancient building the plastered front. 
sad-faced woman in black answered my summons, and I was stung with disappointment when she told me, in halting English, that Gustav Johansson was no more. He had not survived his return to his wife. The doings at sea in 1925 had broken him. He had told her no more than he had told the public, but he had left a long manuscript of technical matters, as he said, written in English, evidently in order to safeguard his wife from the perils within. During a walk through a narrow lane in the Gothenburg dock, a bundle of papers falling from an attic window had knocked him down. Two Lasker sailors at once helped him to his feet, but before the ambulance could reach him, he was dead. Physicians found no adequate cause for the end, and they laid it to heart trouble and a weakened constitution from the trip of sea. I now felt gnawing at my vitals that dark terror which will never leave me until I too am at rest, that this man died accidentally. Persuading the widow that my connection with her husband's technical matters was sufficient to entitle me to his manuscript, I bore the document away and began to read it on the London boat. It was a simple, rambling thing, a naive sailor's effort at a post-facto diary, and strove to recall day by day that last awful voyage. I cannot attempt to transcribe it verbatim in all its cloudiness and redundance, but I will tell you it's just enough to show why the sound of the water against the vessel's sides became so unendurable to me that I stopped my ears with cotton. It turns out that Johansen did not know quite all, even though he saw the city and the thing. But I shall never sleep calmly again when I think of the horrors that lurk ceaselessly behind life in time and space those unhallowed blasphemies from elder stars which dream beneath the sea, known and favored by a nightmare cult, ready and eager to loose them on the world, whenever another earthquake shall heave their monstrous stone city again to the sun and the air. Johansen's voyage had begun just as he told to the vice-admiralty. The Emma, in Malast, had cleared Auckland on February 20th, and had felt the full force of that earthquake-born tempest, which must have heaved up from the sea bottom the horrors that filled men's dreams. Once more under control, the ship was making good progress when held up by the alert on March 22nd. I could feel the mate's regret as he wrote of her bombardment and sinking. 
of the swarthy colt fiends on the alert. He speaks with significant horror. There was some peculiarly abominable quality about them, which made their destruction seem almost a duty. Johansson shows ingenuous wonder at the charge of ruthlessness brought against his party during the proceedings of the court of inquiry. Then, driven ahead by curiosity in their captured yacht under Johansson's command, the men found a great stone pillar sticking out of the sea. As they came upon a coastline of mingled mud, ooze, and weedy cyclopean masonry, which can be nothing less than the tangible substance of Earth's supreme terror, the nightmare corpse city, Rilea, that was built in measureless aeons beyond history, built by vast, loathsome shapes that seeped down from the dark stars. There lay great Cthulhu and his hordes, hidden in green, slimy vaults, and sending out last, after cycles incalculable, the thoughts that spread fear to the dreams of the sensitive and called imperiously to the faithful to come on a pillaging of liberation and restoration. All this Johansson did not suspect, but God knows he saw soon enough. I suppose that only a single mountain top, the hideous, monolith-crowned citadel whereupon great Cthulhu was buried, actually emerged from the waters. When I think of the extent of all that may be brooding down there, I almost wish to kill myself forthwith. Johansson and his men were awed by the cosmic majesty of this dripping Babylon of elder demons. They must have guessed without guidance that it was nothing of this or of any sane planet. Amazement at the unbelievable size of the greenish stone blocks, the dizzying height of the great carven monolith, the stupefying identity of the colossal statues, the strange image found in the shrine on the alert. All of this is poignantly visible in every line of the mate's frightened description. Without knowing what futurism is like, Johansson achieved something very close to it when he spoke of the city. Instead of describing any definite structure or building, he dwells only on broad impressions of vast angles, stone surfaces, surfaces too great to belong to anything right or proper for this earth. Horrible images, hieroglyphs. I mention his talk about angles because it suggests something Wilcox had told me of his awful dreams. He had said that the geometry of the dream place he saw was abnormal, loathsomely redolent of spheres, dimensions, very apart from ours, 
Now, an unlettered seaman felt the same thing whilst gazing at the terrible reality. Johansson and his men landed at a sloping mud bank on this monstrous Acropolis. They clambered, slippery up over titan, oozy blocks, which could have been no mortal staircase. The very sun of heaven seemed distorted when viewed through the polarizing miasma welling out from the sea-soaked perversion. Twisted menace, suspense lurked leeringly in those crazily elusive angles of carven rock. A second glance showed concavity after the first showed convexivity. Something very like fright had come over all of the explorers before anything more definite than rock and ooze and weed was seen. Each would have fled had he not feared the scorn of the others, and it was only half-heartedly that they searched, vainly as it proved, for some portable souvenir to bear away. It was Rodriguez the Portuguese who climbed up the foot of the monolith and shouted about what he had found. The rest followed him and looked curiously at the immense carved door with the now familiar squid dragon. It was, Johansen said, like a great barn door, and they all felt that it was a door because of the ornate lintel threshold, jams all around. Although they could not decide whether it lay flat like a trapdoor or slantwise like an outside cellar door. As Wilcox would have said, the geometry of the place was all wrong. One could not be sure that the sea and the ground were horizontal Hence the relative position of everything else seemed phantasmally variable. Brighton pushed at the stone in several places without result. Then Donovan felt over it delicately around the edge, pressing each point separately as he went. He climbed along the grotesque stone molding. The men stood in wonder at how any door in the universe could be so vast. Then, very softly and slowly, the acre-grate panel began to give inward at the top, and they saw that it was balanced. Donovan slid, or somehow propelled himself down, and rejoined his fellows. Everyone watched the strange recession of the monstrously carven portal, in this fantasy of prismatic distortion, it moved in a diagonal way. All the rules of matter and perspective seemed upset. The aperture was black with a darkness almost material. This seemed a positive quality, for it obscured such parts of the inner walls as ought to have been revealed. 
it actually burst forth like smoke from its aeon-long imprisonment, visibly darkening the sun as it slunk away into the shrunken and gibbous sky with flapping, membranous wings. The odor arising from the newly opened depths was intolerable. At length, the quick-eared Hawkins thought he heard a nasty, slopping sound down below. Everyone listened, and everyone was listening still when it lumbered slobberingly into sight. It groped and squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway. It came into the tainted outside air of that poison city of madness. Poor Johansson's handwriting almost gave out when he wrote this. Of the six men who never reached the ship, he thinks two perished of pure fright of that accursed instant. The thing cannot be described. There is no language for the shrieking and immemorial lunacy. Such eldritch contradictions of all matter, force, and cosmic order. A mountain walked. The mountain stumbled. God, what wonder that across the earth a great architect went mad. Poor Wilcox raved with fever in that telepathic instant. The thing of the idols, the green, sticky spawn of the stars, had awakened to claim his own. The stars were right again, and what an age-old cult had failed to do by design, a band of innocent sailors had done by accident. After who knows how many years, great Cthulhu was loose again, and he was ravenous with delight. Three men were swept up by the flabby claws before anybody turned. God rest them, if there be any rest in the universe. They were Donovan, Guerrera, and Angstrom. The men were plunged frenziedly over endless vistas of green-crusted rock to the boat. Johansson swears he was swallowed up by an angle of masonry, which shouldn't have been there, an angle which was acute, but behaved as if it were obtuse. Only Bryden and Johansson reached the boat, and they pulled desperately for the alert as the mountainous monstrosity flopped down the slimy stones. It hesitated, floundering at the edge of the water. Steam had not been suffered to go down entirely, despite the departure of all hands for the shore, and it was the work of only a few moments of feverish rushing up and down between wheels and engines to get the alert underway. Slowly, Amidst the distorted horrors of the indescribable scene, she began to churn the lethal waters. On the masonry of that charnel shore that was not of earth, 
the titan thing from the stars, slavered and gibbered like polypheme, cursing the fleeing ship of Odysseus. Then, bolder than the storied Cyclops, great Cthulhu slid greasily into the water and began to pursue with vast wave-raising strokes of cosmic potency. Bryden looked back and went mad, laughing shrilly as he kept, and laughing at intervals until death found him one night in the cabin. Johansen wandered deliriously for days. But Johansen was not given out yet. Knowing that the thing could surely overtake the alert until steam was fully up, he resolved on a desperate chance. He set the engine for full speed, ran lightning-like on deck, and reversed the wheel. There was a mighty eddying and foaming in the noathsome brine, and as the steam mounted higher and higher, the brave Norwegian drove his vessel head-on against the pursuing jelly, which rose above the unclean froth like the stern of a demon galleon, the awful squid head with writhing feelers, came nearly up to the bowsprit of the sturdy yacht, but Johansen drove on relentlessly. There was a bursting as of an exploding bladder, a slushy nastiness as of a cloven sunfish, a stench as of a thousand open graves, and a sound that the chronicler would not put to paper. For an instant, the ship was befouled by an acrid and blinding green cloud, and there was only a venomous, seething astern, where, God in heaven, the scattered plasticity of that nameless sky spawn was nebulously recombining in its hateful, original form. Its distance widened every second as the alert hurried away. And that was all. After that, Johansen only brooded over the idol in the cabin and attended to a few matters of food for himself and the laughing maniac by his side. He did not try to navigate after the first bold flight, the encounter had taken something from his soul. Then came the storm of April 2nd and a gathering of clouds about his consciousness. There is a sense of spectral whirling through liquid gulfs of infinity, of dizzying rides through reeling universes on a comet's tail, and of hysterical plunges from the pit to the moon and from the moon back again to the pit, all livened by a cacophoning chorus of the distorted, hilarious elder gods and the green, bat-winged, mocking imps of Tartarus. Out of that dream came rescue, the vigilant, the vice-admiralty court, the streets of Dunedin, 
the long voyage back home. He could not tell. They would think him mad. He would write of what he knew before death came. But his wife must not guess. Death would be a boon, if only it would blot out his memories. This was the document that I read, and now I have placed it in the tin box beside the sculpture and the papers of Professor Engel. With it shall go this record of mine, this test of my own sanity, wherein is pieced together that which I hope may never be pieced together again. I have looked upon all that the universe has to hold of horror, and even the skies of spring, and the flowers of summer. Everything may afterward poison me, but I do not think my life will be long. As my uncle went, as poor Johansen went, so shall I go. I know too much, and the cult still lives. Cthulhu still lives, too, I suppose, again in the chasm of stone which has shielded him since the sun was young. His accursed city is sunken once more, for the vigilant sailed over the spot after the April storm. But his ministers on earth still bellow and prance and slay around idle-capped monoliths, lonely places. He must have been trapped by the sinking whilst within his black abyss, or else the world would by now be screaming with fright and frenzy. But who knows the end? What has risen may sink, and what has sunk may rise. Loathsome weights and dreams in the deep. Decay spreads over the tottering cities of men. A time will come, but I must not and cannot think of it. Let me pray that, if I do not survive this manuscript, my executors may put caution before audacity, and see that it meets no other eye. The end. Thank you for listening, my darling. Have very sweet and creepy dreams.